0: Hey, Pioneers, and welcome to episode number 296. Today's episode is going to be about how you can grow more food by creating a food forest that requires less work and uses your space wisely. So the first time I heard the term food forest, I wasn't really sure what people meant by it. And as I started to learn more about it, it combines permaculture and restoration practices for edible gardening. So a lot of it is done with a perennial type structure, including fruit trees and berry bushes, but it also can incorporate regular annual vegetables and a lot more edible plants than one would think beyond just your typical fruit trees and berry bushes. So it incorporates them as well. So I brought in a guest expert today. And you guys, I am not kidding you. I just got done recording this episode. I literally have a page of notes and already have outlined the plants that I am going to get that I don't currently have to begin creating my food Forest. So I am really excited for this episode you can do it small scale and you can do it large scale so it doesn't matter if you have a small urban yard or if you have acreage and sprawling property or if you just have one single fruit tree you're going to be able to incorporate these tips and they are so good I'm so excited for this episode so Darren if you're not familiar with him is the founding owner of Growing With Nature. So it is a site that aims to make our living world come alive with abundance for people, plants, and wildlife, one property at a time. Darren holds a master's in environmental studies and an applied science degree in water resources, and he loves sharing the joy of growing food with his two beautiful children. And nothing makes him happier than seeing his kids exploring the living world around them. Now, even though Darren is in the same area, we're actually, oh goodness, we're probably about two to three hours away from one another, but he is from Western Washington. However, he gives some great tips about using native plants, even if your growing climate is vastly different than mine, that you'll be able to apply. And he also gives us some great lists of plants that will go, grow, go and or grow, but ideally we want them to grow, not just go, <laughs> in different gardening climate so no matter where you're at your gardening journey or what your growing climate looks like I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode and because he lists some different plants and you will actually hear me stop him and say can you please spell that one for me it's a new one we have in today's blog post that accompanies this episode you're going to want to go and grab all of the resources there because it is just jam-packed so you're going to want to go to melissaknorris.com Forward slash 296. So just the number 296, because this is episode number 296. It'll take you straight there and you can get all of the links and look at all of the great resources that we have accompanying this episode. So without further ado, let's jump in. Well, I am super excited to have you on the show. So, Darren, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. Really appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah. So this is a subject I'm actually really excited to talk to you about because I don't have a ton of experience in it. I'm very intrigued by it. And I've had a lot of listeners and readers ask me about it. So I'm so grateful that you're going to be coming on and giving not only the listeners, but myself um, some tips and some education on how to begin implementing this. And let's just get right to it. What is a food forest? And how is that separate or how is that different from having an orchard?
1: Yeah. So when you think about an orchard, generally, especially on a commercial side, you know, you're looking at fields of a single type of fruit tree. You know, sometimes they even are bare ground underneath them. There's just a fruit tree there. Uh, sometimes there's grass um, growing around them, but it's pretty basic, you know, just the fruit trees themselves. And that's, that can work great, right, you know, for the commercial settings where they use a Mechanized equipment to do it all the harvesting and everything, but a food forest is looking more at like what is what does a forest actually look like and can we mimic that to grow food? So you know, there's instead of just the fruit trees, there's also going to be shrubs in there. There's going to be you know root crops, um, herbaceous plants, non woody ones. You know, there's climbers. In a classic food forest, there's kind of like seven layers. Yeah, you got the canopy trees, the sub-canopy trees, um, the shrubs, those non-woody herbaceous plants, and then kind of some other non-woody plants like the ground covers, like strawberries, root crops, and then the climbers going up them. And so they have the potential to really produce a lot of food because instead of just say getting apples, you might be getting you know apples and berries and you know vegetables, uh, you know a whole wide range of food from that. Same system, so it's you're mimicking a forest, but there is some challenges with that, and I think especially up here in the you know temperate world where we don't get as much sun as the tropics. You know, sometimes you have to kind of modify a food forest and design based on that.
0: Okay, and I'm so glad that you brought that point up because as you were talking about the berries and the fruit trees, I'm like, oh, would my berries get enough sun after the fruit trees reach a certain size? You know, um, or are you looking at when you're doing it like that, are you looking at some berries that perhaps do a little bit better like natively where I live in, the, in Western Washington and I know you're in Western Washington too, but you know, salmon berries just mm-hmm. naturally grow very native in the forest. They don't have to be in full sun. They'll still produce, et cetera. Whereas like my blueberries, I'm not sure how well they would do in a more shaded environment. So do you, you take that into consideration? I'm assuming when you're picking the specific plants that you're going to be putting into the food
1: forest yeah and i like to break food forests into kind of like three types and i feel like each type has different pros and cons to them because a lot of times food forests like when when people picture them they think of just like a, a big mature forest and you know those are very shady i think a lot of food forest examples that people see online tend to come from tropics and subtropics where they get a lot more sun you know and those forests can be a lot more productive in all the layers But like, so I like to break up the three um, types. So, you know, one is just what I call the oak savanna type of food forest. And this is, you know, you're going to, you have the big trees, but they're wide spaced and you have, you have grass or, you know, other like non-woody plants growing between them. And, you know, that's kind of that classic example of, you know, alley cropping could be seen as this way too, where, you know, you're running animals between rows of, of trees, you know, that type of system. And -hmm. that has a lot of light. It's kind of just like you're combining systems with that one but it does take more maintenance than the other types because like one of the other types that i like to think about too is the what i call a recovering forest and for this you know think about like a forest that just after a forest fire for example or a logging activity potentially often especially a forest fire if it's not too intense you're going to have some trees left standing but it's really opened up the whole forest but there's a lot of shrubs coming back up afterwards and so you have this mix of like big trees, but they're widely spaced, but then you, have, you don't really get grasses, but you get a lot of, you know, shrubs and uh, non-woody plants growing around them. And that's, yeah. I like that type. That's actually tends to be my favorite type in our area. And then there's also the, the mature forest, which is, that's what people tend to think about. And that's where you have, you know, a closed canopy, the sunlight's blocked. And, you know, the mature forest type is where most of your production is going to, in our temperate environment is really going to come from fruit and nut trees. You know, they're the ones up there getting the sun, but you could grow, you know, something like you mentioned, salmon berries, you know, and sometimes gooseberries too, depending on how shady. And you can also raise mushrooms or cultivate mushrooms underneath those too. You know, you could do some, you know, get forestry products like timber could be, you know, you can do coppicing, pollarding, kind of systems like that in these, but a recovering forest is open enough. So you might have, when I do it, I'll might space my fruit trees. 20 feet apart or put them in clumps together and then have each clump spaced widely. And then in between them, you have a whole bunch of sun. So there you could grow the raspberries, the blueberries, you know, especially if they're on the south side of those, of those fruit trees. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of have that mix. And then in between those, you could even grow vegetables. You know, I've grown, you know, all sorts of veggies, like my front food forest. I put Scarlet Runner beans in there because there's a nice place that gets a little sun and it, they, they do great there. So you can have this nice nice mix and i think that's important is to know your climate and know how much sun you get and know what you want to get out of it if you want some fruit or nuts but you really want to have a lot of the annual veggies or the classic harvest then you probably want the oak savanna or recovering forest where the trees are spaced out a lot more
0: okay and that makes sense so too for i know when we hear the word forest Mm -hmm. we think of very expansive large areas but for like you're saying a front yard or for doing it and like that's where I have my fruit trees is just actually in our side and and front yard as well to do the system you know Mm -hmm. how small of a space can you do it on obviously the larger it is the more you're going to be able to do but is there really like a space where you're like oh that's probably a little bit too small type
1: yeah it depends on you know what how people think about a forest you know it's in some ways I think it's better to think about this as like you're mimicking the structure of a forest not necessarily the expansive nature of it though i mean Mm -hmm. it's great if you can do that um i'm on just under three acres and you know most of it i haven't had i've only my wife and i have lived on our land just over four years um so i haven't you know done what i want to do on all of it yet but our main food forest is in our front yard and you know four years ago that was just lawn and it's just about 0.06 acres or measured out as like 2,600 square feet. So, you know, it's not very big. My other food forest is about half that size right now. And, you know, but within that front food forest, for example, that's not, you know, less than 3,000 square feet. I have almost 25 types of perennial food crops growing in there. And I can add, you know, annual vegetables in there too. I'll be adding lettuce and, you know, kale uh, with, by annual, but, you know, I'll be adding some nutritional traditional veggies in there too. So, you know, during the main time of the year, I can get probably up to 30 to maybe even 40, depending on how many veggies I put in um, types of food crops in that one small area.
0: So it's really maximizing the space to grow as much as possible. And like mm-hmm. as many different types, like you're saying, there's, you know, the annuals, there's the biennials, um, and of course your perennials and yeah. within those perennials, like really, you know, having all the different ones. So, We've kind of talked a little bit, but basically it sounds like you can grow, or maybe I'm wrong, please correct me, but you can grow (laughs) almost anything in a food forest if you're really thinking about its growing conditions and how Mm -hmm. to place everything appropriately.
1: Yeah, and think about what type of forest you're mimicking. You know, if you look out in nature, um, natural areas, you know, forests aren't static. They change. You know, you'll find, uh, you know, even like old growth forests, when a big tree falls, It creates a big opening in those forests where you get a lot of different types of of plants growing or if a forest fire comes through you get opening environment open areas in there so you you know you kind of can you know don't just try to mimic like a a mature forest that's completely you know dense or you know has a closed canopy i mean you know and that's that's kind of what i keep in mind and then you know they really are perennial systems too so that you're not going to ever till in a food forest Um, even if you're doing annual veggies mixed in there you know you just have too many perennials mixed in Uh, so that's a big part of a food forest too is it's really is a perennial dominated uh, food system uh, even if there are annuals mixed in
0: okay so your front yard where you're saying you have now now that was previously lawn so so here's where I'm going with this because you're saying you know no-till um, mm-hmm. and all of that with the perennials, which yes, within like perennial, I have different perennial beds and I don't till in them. However, yeah. and I also have my my fruit trees and underneath them I've removed all of the grass and we use uh, mulch and compost etc. Um, so that they're not competing with the grass for nutrients and and that type of thing. However, in between these beds and in between my fruit trees, currently I have a lot of grass. So mm-hmm. are you just planting it densely enough? that the grass doesn't have like a, a foothold to get in or are you doing, I, and I know obviously with the, the trees or in the bushes, the ones that are letting their leaves that aren't evergreens, obviously like that's going to create a litter and a mulch on its own. How are you dealing with, especially because you had grass there already because it was a lawn. How mm-hmm. are you dealing with keeping that grass out now that you have it converted or, or was that part of, did you do anything as you were building it? Mm. Uh, walk me through that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I uh, tried a couple of different techniques in my front boot forest. You know, it's surrounded by a hedgerow because uh, it's along a busy road and I wanted privacy. So there's about 100 feet of hedgerow all along the edge of it. And that I actually a lot of that I I double dug, you know, I dug out the grass, dug out some soil, buried the grass and then put the soil back and then planted in that. And that was a lot of work. I didn't want to do that over the entire you know, area. Mm-hmm. So the rest of it in some cases i got the plants before i'd gotten rid of the grass you know sometimes just ran out of time to do the prep i wanted and in those cases i would just i dug out a circle you know get the sod out plant the plant in there and that's not my ideal choice what what i did in a lot of areas is i put down cardboard and wood chips and you know sheet mulch and i sheet mulch it all you know maybe six to nine months before i'd be ready to plant and then but get rid of the grass that way. And then, you know, in the fall or I like to plant my perennials in the fall, if I can um, mm-hmm. fall or spring, depending on the nursery when they're available, but I'll plant everything up after the cardboard has broken down. And, you know, sometimes you get a little grass poking through and you, you either do like, I'll do like spot sheet mulching, or I'll, sometimes it's just seeds germinating. So I'll just yank them out. You know, I really do like to prep first. And for me, sheet mulching is, a, is, is how I've made most of my food forests. But I also, and now we're, Uh, My wife and I are actually going to be getting chickens very soon. We have our coop built and just working on that process. And I'm actually going to be trying to use the chickens to help prepare ground in the future, let them kind of do the scratching and, you know, getting rid of the grass for me. And then I was going to, I've saved a ton of fall leaves and I'm going to be dumping them over the areas where the chickens and then moving the chickens to another area and then eventually moving them back, kind of do a rotation system. And so I'm hoping that that can eliminate the need to use cardboard. And that way I can just kind of use the chickens as my little helpers. Oh,
0: yeah. Um, I'll be very interested to see how your experience. Congratulations, by the way, on getting chickens. That's always um, very exciting, especially (laughs) when you haven't had them before. It's so exciting even when you do have them, especially when she starts to get eggs. But yeah, I'll be super curious to see how that works. We have the chickens out in our pasture and of course i rotate it as soon as they you know get it down to almost bare ground and rotating them off but then i'm not covering it with anything because obviously mm-hmm. i want to increase our pasture because it's for our cattle um yeah. so that'll be really interesting to see i would love to have some follow-up once you've done that for a little bit to see how Definitely. how that works for you yeah so for someone like me because i know a lot of my listeners like we have some fruit trees and or some berry bushes and with my berry bushes, I actually have, I guess I have a little food forest and I didn't even know <laughs> it, but with my berry bushes, I actually have my rhubarb grown in between them for acidity reasons and they just do very well together. And I'm adding mushrooms actually to nice. that this spring. So I, I'm like, oh, I, was, didn't he, I didn't know there was an official name for this or that's part of what I was doing, but just on a very, very small scale. But with my fruit trees, especially because I've got quite a bit of semi-dwarf fruit trees and they are placed probably about twelve to fifteen feet apart, and that's from trunk to trunk, of course, not with you know the, mm-hmm. the canopy. But like I said, I just have kind of out, not even to the full drip line. I actually over the next month need to go out and extend that as the trees have grown and, and c- removes more of the sod to extend where I've got uh, com- uh, And I do the same thing. I put down cardboard and, and compost and, and mulch initially, and then I just keep replacing the, the compost and mulch layer every year. So for that, where I just have these fruit trees, and then it's lawn what would be kind of like my plan of like, okay, here's like some great things that you can add in kind of, you know, step by step to turn that into a food forest, knowing that they're semi-dwarf trees. And they they range in range in age, I should say, the, the fruit trees from about, oh, 12 years down to some that are just a couple years old.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing I definitely like is to, you know, I like to get rid of the grass because I've actually found that when there's grass near planting areas those tend to be the areas where i have the most issues with slugs when i eliminate the grass i tend to have far less issues with slugs so i don't really like the grass it's also i just have to mow it it's not i have a lawn it's not that i'm like eliminate everywhere but in my food forest i definitely get rid of it because of kind of those reasons and then you, know, you talk about replacing the mulch regularly you know one thing i like i you know i do that as i need to but i've been slowly trying to get enough ground cover plants in so that I don't have to remulch so that there's basically a living mulch over all these mm. you know so like strawberries are an easy example you know if you get enough sun but there's you know here in western Washington there's some really great edible native like shade loving plants that I love like growing so like one is called um, pacific water Leaf. And it loves shade, it won't grow out in the sun, but its leaves are edible. it's a very early spring green um, into the summer. kind of get once it flowers, it gets a little tough. but really good tasting um, its roots, the rhizomes actually for, from it you can harvest those too once the patch is established. and I, you know out in nature you'll see them growing in like these big clumps like big patches and it's basically but they love deep shade same with um, redwood sorrel, you know which has a re- it's not related to the kind of classic sorrel, but it has a similar flavor, kind of looks like a little shamrock. Cool. And then there's also woodland strawberries, which are native strawberry that grows under the trees. And then miner's lettuce, uh, sometimes called Claytonia, is one yes. that people are more familiar with. And all and it's native here and all those, you know, they they fill in the shady areas. So like right under the, you know, the drip line, kind of the trunk to the drip line, those areas can be. I like to plant those plants because they do a really good job filling those in, you know, between the fall leaves every year and, and those plants, you can kind of eliminate the need to have to put down mulch. And my goal has been to make it where the mulch disappears, except in my paths, because then I just don't have to re- replace it every year. And I
0: actually really love that idea of not having to replace it and do so much maintenance.
1: Yeah, definitely. And then in the sunnier side of areas, there's another native plant called checker mallow there's two types than our area on um, dwarf and Henderson. And I got both of them growing. And like just this morning, you know, I made a sandwich and I went out and harvested a bunch of um, dwarf checker leaves because it, it stays nice and full and green, it even grows a little bit all through the winter. So, it, and the leaves are completely edible, really nice flavor, great for cooking. They just take care of themselves and they get beautiful pink hollyhock like flowers. Oh, uh, so they're really nice, easy to grow. You know, once you, stick them in the ground you never have to water them or take care of them as long as it's not like a rocky dry area they like a little you know sh- either a little shade not too much shade just like very like afternoon shade you know uh-huh. just prevent keep the hot sun off them or an area that's a little bit moist here we have our soils are all clay and silt so as long as i keep it mulch it tends to stay <laughs> moist a big chunk of the year yeah um, but yeah, so, they're great, you know, and Henderson gets bigger leaves, but dies back in the winter. Dwarf, uh, rose, checker is smaller, but it doesn't die back in the winter. And you know, the, they're great plants.
0: Can, okay. I'm going to so I have never actually heard of it before and yeah. I'm trying to guess on the spelling. Can you spell it for me? <laughs>
1: yeah. So checker is the general name, um, which is, C H uh, E C K E R and then mallow M A L L O W. Ah, okay. And it's, there's a whole bunch in the, in Western United States, there's like 20 plus varieties and I haven't looked them all up, um, but I think they're pretty much all edible. Um, But yeah, people don't seem to know about them, but they're, they're just amazing, beautiful flowers, you know, they're, and they're just an easy, like carefree green. And I have about, I think I I probably have like 50 of them planted and like, basically I have a never ending supply of greens year round from them.
0: Okay. And I love that you said they flower because I really do like to have I mean, vegetables and fruit are beautiful all on their own, but there is something very special about seeing blossoms as well. So Definitely. I like, I like that it's both. And I, when, I didn't, when you were first saying it, I didn't get that it was a mallow. Um, and so well, then when you said that, I'm like, oh, but not like what you would typically think of like, because I have yeah. different mallows that have really pretty pink flowers, but I'm, is it somewhat related or not really at all?
1: Well, the, the common name has mallow in it, but it's actually, I got confused by this when I first looked them up, but they're actually not related to the kind of more, well-known mallows
0: okay okay um
1: there's not many people growing them but there's a nursery up here in western washington actually up by bellingham called fourth corner nursery um and they're a native plant nursery they sell bare roots and that's where i got mine from um, okay from them and they're a great option for a lot of these plants you know um because yeah bare roots are just cheap and it's easy and that's one thing with the food forest too you know like i do grow annual veggies in mine and i know people who grow almost all their annual veggies in their food forests but I also really try to grow a lot of, you know, what are often called perennial vegetables. So mm-hmm. like, you know, the checker mallows, the Pacific water leaf, you know, these are native examples, but they're, I would call them um, perennial veggies. And one of my goals has been to replace as many of my annual veggies with perennial vegetables as possible, especially mm-hmm. in the food forest because I still have a kitchen garden and I plan to keep that, but then I have more space for like the peppers and tomatoes And squash and beans and things that I'm not going to be able to replace with perennial vegetables. You know, I mean, tomatoes are perennial, but not here in this area. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like I'd rather, you know, if I can replace, you know, say more of my leafy greens with these perennial veggies, then in the food forest, then that just opens up more space in my kitchen garden for the other ones that I can't replace.
0: Yeah, I love that with the productiveness of a food forest, because I, I know a lot of us are really familiar, like you're saying, like with a regular kitchen garden. So most of the time you can kind of guesstimate, you know, like, mm-hmm. okay, I have this amount of space I'm going to be planting, you know, my tomatoes, my peppers, my corn squash, et cetera. And you have a, a fairly good idea provided weather, you know, cooperates and all those fun things of what, how much harvest you're going to get, how much yield from that area. Yeah. So with a, with a food forest, um, how productive is it? Because with the perennials, like you have, you know, the one with no not with all of them, because like you're saying that the, the checker mallow, you're able to get, you know, go and harvest off of that um, almost year round, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. But the perennials that oftentimes have a very, you know, specific time of harvest, does it feel like it's really productive? Or are you purposely picking some plants? So you have some that are harvesting at this time, kind of staggering, almost like the harvest um, by the plant or how... Mm-hmm how much food do you guesstimate you get from your food forest?
1: Well, my food forests are still fairly young. So like my fruit trees aren't producing a massive amount yet. We got some cherries from our cherry, cherry, our two cherry trees, um, last year. But, um, and that's one thing with the food forests they're slower to get established. I mean, just like if you plant an orchard, you know, you're not going to get fruit from it right away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could grow, uh, kitchen garden or a market garden and get a lot more food in the first year or two from that system but a food forest if you're you know keeping it focused on the perennials it just gets more productive every year so you know just like when you know seven years in when the fruit trees are really producing you know you're, you're gonna like i have um in my front food forest i think i probably have I'm trying to remember exactly how many i've planted but close to like seven fruit trees so i mean that. Right now they're not that productive. I have two young pawpaws that haven't produced yet. And you know, but I have a lot of berries. So like I have gooseberries in there and they're young but they're already producing and you know, we're getting a bunch of those. We have tons of strawberries in there. Cuz that's the thing with the with the food forest is, you know, this is kind of classic permaculture like the stacking functions is that you're getting a lot of harvest from all these layers in the food forest. So, you know, the trees are one layer, then you get the herbaceous plants are another layer. So a food forest can be like on a per acre basis, basically the most productive way of growing food, uh, at least uh, purely plant-based food. But it does, as a perennial based system, it does take a little longer to get established.
0: Yeah. And that makes sense. So I have a question, especially with um, strawberries and I know that, you know, variety dependent, some put out a lot more runners than others. Um, But and even with some of your uh, herbaceous herbs, you know, actually some of them can be kind of invasive. So do you, (laughs) you know, like I probably wouldn't plant mint um, unless you all you want is mint. Or have you noticed Mm -hmm. that when you have, you know, all of these different layers um, that they kind of balance one another? Or do you worry about invasiveness of certain Mm -hmm. ones taking over? Kind of how do you handle that aspect?
1: Yeah, that is yeah can be a challenge. Like I don't have mint in my food forest. I actually have it placed in a spot where it's kind of stuck between my house and a path and some other areas, so I can confine it. Yeah. Um, The strawberries, you know, what I found with the ones, you know, a lot of people actually take out their strawberries like on a rotation. You know, they're not in a food forest, but kind of the classic way, like my parents do this, is they take them out on a rotation to kind of rejuvenate those areas because you Mm -hmm. know they the plants wear out instead i don't worry about that in my food forest i want them to spread around and then the older plants you know they the first ones i planted they kind of die back and get less productive but then there's other ones that are getting more established and are still producing strawberries and it's it's that's kind of the thing with the forest too they're not you know when you think about a natural forest they're not static you know they're always changing and that's one thing about the food forest compared to like a kitchen garden is your plants, you know, your trees aren't moving, you know, of course your shrubs are staying put, but like your herbaceous plants, those ones, especially if they're perennial and they're ones like strawberries, you know, they're going to, sh- the exact composition is going to change from year to year. And, you know, I'm fine with that. One way I kind of control that a little bit is, you know, it's just favoring certain ones. So like right now, when I go out to harvest my checkermolos, I have some um, native onions growing out there too. And I noticed the checker mallows were kind of swamping a few of them. So mm-hmm. that's where i'm harvesting i'm just cutting back those checker to give those onions more room yeah so it's, you do have to do that is one of the maintenance sides of it but you know as long as you pick the right plants so they're not too aggressive with each other you know for example the shade loving plants aren't going to expand outside outside of the shade areas yep. and okay. you know the sunny ones are, aren't going to go into the shade so you can kind of ship, break them up that way i also um put down like I use woody debris like uh, logs and, and things like that sometimes to separate plants there those can be really good for attracting beneficial um wildlife too so I'll create like a little put a little log pile on the middle of a growing area and then one side has one type of plant and one side has the other type
0: okay gotcha so kind of like a little bit of a natural barrier there too yeah yeah um so this is a question I have because I think This, I don't know if old school or conventional might be a better term, but when, you know, I think like with the fruit trees, obviously, you know, planting them in the large, the large, good night. I'm putting words together (laughs) that don't belong (laughs) in the yard, in the grass is what I was trying to say. Um. But you know the reason I'm moving the the grass from beneath them is obviously I don't want them competing for nitrogen at different levels with the grass mm-hmm. and the and the grass as you get a sod layer it, it ends up compacting the soil and and can cause different issues that so when you're planting these other plants do you ever worry or experience that they're robbing nutrients or everything just kind of gets along and helps to feed mm-hmm. each other back because these are for the most part perennials they're not probably high nitrogen needing plants like we do have with some of our annual vegetables can actually especially the brassica family for one yeah a lot of nitrogen so because they're not typically annuals that we're putting into food for us, is that not as much of a concern
1: uh, it's definitely not as much of a concern as long as you're picking the right type of plants like that's one reason i take out the grass is because grass just doesn't tend to play nice with a lot of these other plants yeah um but it's also you know there is the and this is you know kind of a This could be a whole episode on its own but it's with like soil life um the plants it's an interesting thing but um perennial plants especially they release little packets called um exudates from their roots Uh, you can think of these as like sugars and and other carbs and proteins and different things like that Uh and that feeds the life in the soil and in turn all that soil life releases nutrients that your plants need so there's been a lot of research into this and what's generally found is that in these perennial based systems that are really healthy and, you know, you have a wide diversity is that the soil actually becomes more productive over time because of all those, all the interactions between the plants through their roots and the, the life in the soil. And that's kind of how these natural, you know, forest systems work, but um, you know, Gabe Brown, you know, farmer rancher in North Dakota, he talks a lot about this on his, uh, you know, kind of how he approaches it on his property. And he has huge, you know, thousands of acres of land that he kind of, he doesn't do food for us. He's more traditional, but he kind of uses the same principles. And there's, you know, there's other examples, but that's, I kind of count on that, you know, just really promoting the life in the soil. And that can really feed the plants, the nutrients they need when they need it, as opposed to us trying to guess what the plants need. But then I do also include nitrogen fixers. So, you know, every, like in my food forest, I like to have gummy berries. You know, they're, they're great, you know, health food. Um, my kids actually like them a lot too, uh, just for fresh eating, you know, I eat them too. And there are nitrogen fixers. So I plant those around. I also plant native lupins. So I have, there's a couple types here in Western Washington. Um, Riverbank is one of my favorites, um, but there's a few others. Okay. But the riverbank lupins, you know, I grow it under the fruit trees because it gets a huge tap So it helps loosen up like the soils that I have here. Yeah. And it doesn't die back like a lot of um, lupins. Oh, it's, okay. a woody. it's a woody. It grows woody, but I chop and drop it um, twice a year. So okay. I'm basically getting after it flowers, I chop and like after it flowers and goes to seed, I chop and drop it. And then in the spring, when it's first sending up its new growth, I chop and drop it again. And even doing that, it's still flowers every year. The bumblebees and other pollinators love it. But I'm also getting this like really rich, you know, in nitrogen, um, chop and drop that I drop right around my trees. Okay. And, and then it's a nitrogen fixer too. So it releases, you know, nitrogen the whole time. So I do mix in the nitrogen fixers just to help, but you know, that's a perennial system does kind of, it does, if it's being set up right, it will build soil on its own too.
0: Okay, and I'm so excited I love Lupin, and yes, they have some of the longest tap roots, like people say dandelions yeah. have tap roots, oh man, no, Lupin is much more, but I'm not familiar with that variety, so I'm excited to actually go and and check that out and and get some. um so I have two questions that I want to ask before we wrap up. and one mm-hmm. is, I know we've been talking a lot about um native plants that grow in a a western uh you know a little bit more of a maritime Pacific Northwest type environment and yeah. using native plants. Mm-hmm. However, you know, we have, have listeners from all over and, and come from all different types of, of growing conditions. And mm-hmm. so for the native plants, um, do you, can you talk just a little bit about why? I mean, I know some of it's kind of probably obvious for a lot of you of why to pick native plants because they you don't have to baby them they're acclimated to your area but for someone listening is like I have a very different growing climate than you Um, what are kind of some of good resources for finding native plants in your area
1: yeah um, so the Audubon Society actually has a website Um, if you google um, native plants and Audubon Society together it pops up and they have a database um, where you put in your zip code and it will show you native plants that are good for birds. But what I like about their database is it also has a tab that lists um, nurseries in your area that sell native plants. Ah, okay, and that is fabulous. Yeah, there it's a great one, you know, cause I, I get questions about native plants too. And I know the ones in our area, but I don't, you know, I, there's too many across the entire country to ever learn them. Yeah. So, you know, but there's, you know, and, and some of them have a wide range, like some of the mallows, you know, there's mallows all up and down, basically from the Rockies to the coast, all the way down to Mexico, up into Canada, there's mallows. So, you know, some of these plants, the exact species might be more limited, but the general type is widespread. You know, the Pacific water leaf, there's uh, also a Virginia water leaf that grows on the East Coast and, and in the South some, and it's very similar, same type of growing conditions. Um, you know, With miners lettuce is widespread. So, you know, look at those um, local conservation districts or soil conservation districts, depending on what they're called in your area. Those ones, um, generally, those people can point you in the right direction. And sometimes like the ones in our area tend to have native plant sales every year.
0: Oh, yeah, and as we move into spring, typically I, I've seen those actually, yeah, and you're right they're they're definitely in the in the spring, usually once a year. I don't know. Did you see any happen in the fall? I haven't noticed any in the fall, but I haven't really looked hard either.
1: yeah, they don't they tend to be less common, you know it's actually i when I can, I plant in the fall, but often yeah, they're not available until like February through April tends to be more common
0: okay, so this um, is perfect yeah. timing then, okay
1: <laughs> and great, and yeah, the native plants you know they're they're i I bring them up. You know they they provide a lot of benefits but then also they a lot of people just don't know about them so for example like the checker mallows you know that's a food source that i wish everybody in western washington was growing it just because it's so easy you can get so much um greens from it without any effort really and it's beautiful you know you, if you have a front yard and an hoa issue you could plant it under the trees and everybody would just think it's a flower yeah
0: I, yeah i love that. that yeah the 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 riverbank lupin. And then the checker mallows, those are the two that I'm like, as soon as we get done, I'm actually going to (laughs) to see if I can order them right now, or if I could get to the fourth quarter nursery, because actually Bellingham, ah, it's about an hour and a half away from me, but it's really not that far. So I'm like, oh, maybe I need to plan a little trip here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and just so you know, they are a wholesale nursery, um, but they're, they're a great place. And they sell to the general public though. You just have to have a minimum order size.
0: Okay, perfect. Well, I, I don't tend to have an issue meeting minimum orders when it comes to plant. It's more <laughs> yeah. I'm buying plants. It's more holding myself back, being like, do you really need that many more?
1: <laughs> yeah, I definitely have that issue, too.
0: I think it's something most gardeners have in common, actually. So any final tips on how someone can get started with doing their very first food forest?
1: Yeah. So I think a good way to start is not necessarily trying to create a forest, but just trying to mimic the structures of a forest, even around a single fruit tree. So say you have like one apple tree, you know, like I, you could start, make sure it's mulched, you know, there's no grass around it, add, you know, some nitrogen fixing shrub or, you know, the lupins, or there's a, in our area, there's a native um, uh, clover, called, uh, spring baked clover that has really great edible roots that I want, I've been trying to get established on my place. So you like any nitrogen fixing plant though, plant one or two of those around it, you know, mix in some flowers, you know, you're going to attract beneficial insects. Um, you know, if they're edible, like the, you know, like nasturtiums or the checker mollows, that's an added bonus. You know, I always do some rocks and logs around mine because I'm trying to really, you know, forest has woody debris in it. So I'm always trying to mimic that side too. But then you can stick in some lettuce, you could stick in, you know, other plants like food growing plants, stick in some strawberries, you know, and, and then you go from one fruit tree that maybe was kind of isolated by itself. You know, I see that a lot in people's yards where it's just a fruit tree with grass. Yeah. But now you have this fruit tree that has kind of all the structures. And then, you know, if you have another one planted 15, 20 feet away, you can do the same thing. And then maybe eventually you mulch between them and add some more plants, maybe a, sh- a berry shrub. You know raspberry patch something or just like veggies in between them and then Uh you have two and then you find a third one and you just kind of keep that pattern repeating yeah and you know before you know it you have a whole food forest, even if you just started with one tree
0: i love that i love how you broke it down so simplistically like if you have one tree start here and do that and then and then build out and do it um I'm actually really excited to go and try some of these and put some of these plants in this year. So for folks who are wanting to dive deeper into this um, and connect with you, you've Mm -hmm. given us so much great information. Where's the best place for people to to find out more?
1: Yeah. So my site um, where I try to help people with with this and other topics is called um, Growing With Nature. Uh, So it's growingwithnature.org. And that site is focused on helping people to cultivate abundance for people, plants and wildlife. And so we it really focuses on five areas of like building healthy soil, perennial food systems, working with native plants, working with wildlife and working with your land. And so I definitely recommend going on there. We have a guide available for people to learn more about perennial food systems, including food forests. So, you know, check that site out. And, you know, I got a number of blog posts all about uh, food forests that you can check out.
0: Oh, awesome. Well, thank you. This has been so informative. Um, I've got my homework. I literally was taking notes. And so I have my homework list of plants that I'm going to get. (laughs) Um, And so I'm actually really excited. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. I really enjoyed it. And I can't wait to um, have to do a follow up episode after you've had the chickens and seeing how that method is working for you um, of using those to control the the lawn and to keep the weeds and stuff down. I'll be really excited yeah, to see that'd how be that great.
1: works. Yeah, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Melissa, so much for having me on here. I really appreciate it.
0: I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Like I said, that thing is jam packed, is it not? I hope you got some great tips there. And if you are looking to do more With the space that you have on providing more of your own food for your family, including both an annual vegetable garden, fruit production, perennials, and even herbs to use both as culinary, but also as natural medicine. Well, then, my friends, you really need to become a member of the Pioneering Today Academy. Pioneering Today Academy is my membership site that holds all of my courses we have a private community for members only that is literally like a family. I we commonly have members say time and time again that I don't have anybody in my regular life who understands this and you guys give me so much help. I love having this community that I can come to when I'm frustrated or when I just need to celebrate something and nobody else gets how excited I am over this. All of that is included with the Pioneering Today Academy membership and you also get monthly live support with two, at a minimum, two live videos from me and a whole lot more. Now, the reason I'm talking about all of this is because I wanna set you up for success both in the community and with the hands-on tutorials, both in video format and written download guides, but I only open up for general enrollment into the membership because I go heavy with our members and we move forward together. And so I can't have people coming in at all different times because then you won't be up to speed, and I really need like to focus on our members. So that's why I only open up enrollment a couple of times a year. And so March 24th is coming up for our general open enrollment. It's the first time we've been open since goodness, I think it was last September. So the first time for this year. So make sure if you have any interest in joining the Academy, that you get on the wait list if you're not there already. And that way, as soon as we open on March 24th, you will get an email from me so that you can join the membership. We'll only be open for, actually, it won't even be a full week. We'll only be open for five days. So it's a pretty short window, but I am so excited. Many of you have been emailing me and messaging me on social media saying you can't wait until we open. You're so excited to start your membership and I can't wait to welcome you in as well. So make sure that you are on that notify list. So whenever you're listening to this, go to melissaknorris.com forward slash PTA, short for Pioneering Today Academy, but just the letters PTA. And if you don't see the ability to join, you will see where you can just pop your name and email in to get on that wait list. So no matter when you're listening to this, go on over there, hop on the wait list. Or if you happen to be listening to this, and it's during our open enrollment, you can join right now. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I can't wait to be back here with you next week as well. Blessings and mason jars for now.